Welcome to the very first Book Larder podcast. I'm Lara Hamilton, owner of Book Larder, a cookbook shop in Seattle, Washington. We started this podcast to share some of the great conversations that we have with cookbook authors, and I can't imagine a better way to kick it off than to share this interview with the legendary Ruth Reichel. Ruth visited us in April to discuss her latest memoir, Save Me the Plums, which is about her time as editor-in-chief at the much-loved Gourmet Magazine. As you'll hear from the fairly shaky tone of my voice in the introduction, I'm a big Ruth fan, and I get a little giddy every time she visits us, and I think it shows. She's in conversation with Nancy Leeson. Nancy is a local journalist and radio host who also happens to teach cooking classes for us at Booklarder. We recorded this conversation at Fremont Abbey in front of a live audience. Please enjoy Ruth Reichel and Save Me the Plums. We are just absolutely thrilled to welcome Ruth Reichel back to Seattle tonight. She is, I'm going to be like too gushy, but one of the people that I think we can sort of thank for the fact that we have Book Larder. I started reading Ruth's books a long time ago when I was still working in high tech. About the time that I decided I wanted to go work in food, I saw that she was going to be at Third Place Books in Lake Forest Park. And so I went to the talk and I got her to sign my book at the end. I got my picture taken with her and the whole thing. And the next day I had decided, okay, I'm going to leave high tech. I'm really going to go do this. And at the same time, Gourmet Magazine closed. And so, and she was so graceful about it. You know, like I I, um, got to meet her at the IACP conference and I sort of threw myself at her and was like, you've just handled this all so well, you know. And she said, you know, but, but why, why get upset? She said, you know, it was a great thing, and, and, and why should I get upset? And so sometimes I think of, you know, when I'm having, like, one of those moments, I think, like, there's always a little Julia Child of, like, tant pis, you know, like, don't worry about it. And there's a little bit of Ruth of, like, why should I get upset? So I'm delighted that she's here tonight to share the story of sort of that, that time in her life. She's going to be in conversation with Nancy Leeson, who I got to know about the time that Book Larder opened. And Nancy came in the store, um, I think actually even before we were open, and she is an avid cookbook collector and has just like a massive, massive collection. One of the collectible books on our shelf caught her eye, and she said, I can't believe you have this. Like, this is, I've wanted this for a long time. And she pulled it off the shelf, and it was Mmm, a feastiary by Ruth Reichel. There you go, yeah. <laughs> and so that was the first book that Nancy bought at Book Larder. So when Ruth was coming to town to tell this story, I thought it would be perfect to get them on stage together very selfishly. So please join me in welcoming Nancy Leeson and Ruth Reichel. Yeah, I brought props. <laughs> Laura stole my thunder a little bit because that story is very true. Here is a copy of Ruth's very first book. You said, mmm. <laughs> what the hell is a feastiary? That's what I well, you know, it's like a bestiary. I don't know. I mean, I was 21. You were. Um, and if I had had an editor with any sense, she would have said, People are going to be embarrassed to go into a bookstore and say, do you have mm? <laughs> um, But I think they were so taken with the notion of a cookbook by a young person. But this is just an example of how much things have changed 
you know, in 1971, I walk into a publisher's office and say, I have this idea for a cookbook. And not once do they say, can you cook? Who's testing the recipes? Where are the recipes coming from? But, you know, literally just, oh, a cookbook by a young person. What a good idea. (laughs) And it was a stunning idea because, Ruth, I'm just going to hand this over to you. And I would like you to read for this lovely audience the part that says Ruth and then allow me. She has no idea that I'm doing this. (laughs) Oh, my God. (laughs) Come on, you can do it. The start and finish of the circle. Take a deep breath, hold it in, and let it out slowly. Hang limp on the wind with the blinding blue sky smiling down at you. Fall is man's season of the year, when the whole earth cooperates to keep us alive. Fall. Orange leaves go swirling past the window. Butternut soup. Smooth. Hot. Savory. Winter's coming. Too soon. Outside, it's raining the rain running in sheets down the window, seeping in slightly where the two edges don't quite meet. It gathers in the gutters of the drain pipe and then bursts forth in the whoosh of a waterfall. Inside, the cats purr on the bed, stretching and snuggling together. Their purr echoes through the house, made soft and secure by the rain outside. The house is wrapped round with the warm brown smell of cinnamon cake. So... Before we go one step further, I want you to know that Ruth's reading from, mmm, a feastiary. I'm reading from my kitchen year and her Twitter feed. One more time. Here we go. Snow on the ground, fricassee on the stove, cats purring by the fire, pretty perfect Sunday. Is there any difference here? There's not. Ruth, keep going. I have not read mmm in probably 40 years, so... It comes in rosy-cheeked and sends your breath dancing before you. Energy is in the air, wraps itself around you, and pushes you down the street. Come all glowing into a warm kitchen where the steaming air is full of laughter and the smell that slips out of a pot is full of promise. White world, snow still falling. Even the hawks have flown away. Lemon soup, bright, soothing. Somewhere, the sun is shining. My point here is that Ruth invented the Twitterverse. I'm really kind of stunned that my voice hasn't changed in 50 years. I I was, I have to tell you, I I look, you know, when I knew I was going to interview you, I pulled mm out and started looking through it and I immediately was taken by how much it hasn't changed. And that is so interesting when you think that your writing career has spanned, you know, 40, uh, You would think I would have learned something. <laughs> <laughs> so um, you have 1.3 million followers on Twitter, a built-in audience that's bigger than Gourmet's subscription base. Am I right about that? You're right, yes. Okay. <laughs> what does that mean to you? It, it, it kind of stuns me. You know, I started Twitter... Just, I mean, it was a dinner party at my house and a bunch of friends said something about Twitter and I said, what are you talking about Twitter? I mean, this is 2009. They said, oh, we're going to sign you up and they signed me up and I really just thought I was talking to my friends. I didn't do it for any other reason than, well, this is an interesting exercise, 140 characters. 
I'm going to try and paint a picture of a moment in my life every day. And just so, you know, my friends can know what I'm thinking, eating, seeing. And I'll just do this once every day. I never thought about other And then suddenly strangers were tweeting it back at me. And I had a group of friends who I've never met. And that's what it feels like to me. It's like I, I built a community really inadvertently. And every once in a while, I feel like I'm going to stop doing it. And I mean, because sometimes they just seem really over the top to me. What I'm writing. I don't know. Sometimes it just seems like a bit much. I mean, th- and this, this does. But you were 21. Those were longer. Those were longer. It's better when there's only 148 characters. <laughs> But every time I, I think I'm not going to do it, I will meet someone who says, I really look forward to what you tweet every day. And when you don't do it, it's my day isn't as good. And I think, well, okay, I'll keep doing it. And the truth is, I mean, the other side of me, so there's the side of me that says, oh, please, when I read some of these things. And then there's the other side of me, which I genuinely believe that the secret to happiness is paying attention to the little things in life. You know, I think part of what Save Me the Plums is about is about my learning that all over again. So if I can get even one person a day to stop and pay attention to the way the traffic lights look at night on a wet street and that that little moment gives them pleasure then it's worth doing. Within the last five years, you've pu- five years, you've published three different kinds of books. A novel, delicious, a cookbook, My Kitchen Year, and your latest mo- memoir, Save Me the Plums. Each dealing with the same subject, gourmet, and your deep connections to it from the time you were a child. I'm curious about the emotional and the practical differences you dealt with in writing these three very different types of books about the same subject. Well, you are asking amazing questions. <laughs> I, I, I mean, I want you to know, I, I have now been on book tour for something like 10 days, and nobody's asked me, nobody's gone anywhere near here. <laughs> um, and and uh, I hope it's interesting for you, because it's really interesting for me. <laughs> So when the magazine closed, well, first I, I had always said, if I didn't have a day job, I would write a novel. But I also knew from the moment I arrived at Gourmet that I was going to write a memoir about Gourmet because it was, it, it, there was so much to write about. So, I mean, I was keeping notes from the moment that I got there. But I also thought, well, I should put it off for a while and I, I want to write this novel first. You know, part of the reason I wanted to write a novel is because I am really a slave to fiction. I love fiction. And I had this stupid idea that writing fiction would be like reading fiction and that I would just sort of, you know, walk into another world and play around in it all day. Well, that wasn't true. (laughs) And I was really depressed about the closing of the magazine. I found writing, I mean, I was trying really hard to write, but I just couldn't. And I did find myself going into the kitchen and just doing lots of cooking. And, and I really felt like cooking in that year saved my life and decided that I wanted to write about that because 
I thought it, it would be valuable to other people that, that there is a way to work through terrible blow in the kitchen. And again, it's the same thing. It's like paying attention. And writing is not that easy for me. I'm so glad to hear you say that. Oh, no. But, so here's, but this is interesting. So writing has never been easy for me either at all. I write very slowly and methodically, and I rewrite all the time, and I shouldn't. So to hear you say that, because you're so prolific, is amazing to me. I hate writing. Oh, I hate it. But I love having written. And the days that... The days that it goes well, there is no feeling. I mean, I'm not a winner, right? I don't get the endorphins that, that athletes get. But I think I get that same thing from the day that goes well. I mean, that moment when you're writing and you're going, I can't do this, I can't do this, I can't do this. And then suddenly you go away and you come back and there's words on the page. But it's not like you labored at it. It just happened. And that's such an extraordinary feeling. I mean, those days you just... But anyway, I, I was struggling with the novel, those days of, you know, the words appeared on the page never happened. And then I started writing my kitchen year and I've never written anything that was this easy. And you know what? It reads that way. It reads so true. It's like a diary of being in the kitchen with your best friend who's talking to you about her day and her life in the kitchen. That book really wrote itself, and I knew I wanted to put the tweets in, and it, it just, it was really organic. And my editor, who is a very hands-on editor, did very little. I mean, the one thing she did with that book, at one point, we had been going to call it the Tao of Ruth. And I opened, and, but the reason, so I opened with this story about turning on the radio one day and hearing Tony Bourdain on the radio reading my tweets and saying, you know, what kind of a life does this woman live? <laughs> he had this, like, you know, music, spa music you know, in the background, and he said, and from now on every day we're going to do a minute and we're going to call it the Tao of Ruth. And, and so I have a whole, I had the whole opening about that. And then when the book was really done, I said, you know, we can't call it the Tao of Ruth because nobody will know that it's tongue in cheek and they're going to think that I actually mean that. Um, and that was really the only, she said, you know, if you're not going to call it the Tao of Ruth, just get rid of the whole Tony Bourdain thing. So we did. Or the Ruth Bourdain thing. Or the Ruth Bourdain thing. But so that book happened, and then I went back to the novel, and it was um, hard won, that novel. And then I was done with that, and I thought, okay, I know how to write memoir. This is going to be a piece of cake. Um, I really did think that. You know, I've, I've written you know, four memoirs, and I, I really know how to do this. And Susan, my editor, who is... She, she's really a spectacular editor, but very hands-on. And I said, you know, she's she's not going to have anything to say about this. It's just going to... Well, I, I ended up writing six, at least six versions of this book. And Susan kept saying, not good enough, down to the point where two years ago, as recently as two years ago, she said to me, maybe you should just move on and write your next novel because this isn't working. And what did you do that day when she said that? 
I, I, I was devastated. I was really devastated. And she just said, I was trying very hard to write very much about magazine making. And she said, this feels airless. You never get out of the building. You're writing, and it's too distant. And yeah, it's nice to know that you did this Edna Lewis issue and how that came to be. So, I mean, I had you know chapters about all these different issues that we had done. And she just kept saying, we want to know what you're feeling. We want to know what it's like to you know, be someone who's never had any money and walk into all this luxury. We want to know what it's like to not know how to be a boss and suddenly have 65 people working for you. And if you're not willing to say that, this book is useless. And she said, and I, she kept making me put more in about Nick. You know, I mean, we want to know what it's like to be someone who wishes she could spend more time with her kid, but also is totally involved with her job. If, if you're not going to write these things, give it up. Well, you, you know, you told me that once when I interviewed you. Comfort Me With Apples had just come out. And I remember, I think I told you at the time, I was reading it in bed and my husband was sitting next to me and I, I said, oh my God, she stopped Coleman Andrews. And, uh, you know, so, so, who was the editor of Savoir magazine and her lover. When she was married to her first husband. I only, I'm, ex- I'm telling you this because she's already told you this. <laughs> and and of, could you tell me a little bit, tell us, I mean, I, I know about it, but I don't bet a lot of people here don't, about your connection to Seattle. I came to Seattle the first time to when Dale Jahuli started Pilchuck Glass Blowing Workshop. My then husband, Doug, and I, one of our best friends was Buster Simpson, who he and, and Dale were doing Pilchuck together in the early days. And Buster said, you know, with the two of you, we were living in the Lower East Side of New York, and he said, would you come out in the summer? And, you know, Doug can help people build their, in those days, everybody built their own place to live. I mean, there were no dormitories. And, you know, and Ruth can be the cook. And um, we were just finishing the cookbook. Mm, um, feast, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and for the last week, and we gave them camera-ready copy. I mean, we, we did everything. And, and, and I think for the last week, neither of us slept. And I think we left New York on, like, July 1st or something. And we put our cat in our van and drove out to Pilchuck and got there. And, you know, there, there, there was no kitchen there were no bathrooms. I mean, we all just, you know, went to the bathroom in the woods and bathed in the pond and built, I mean, it was wonderful. It was wonderful. And we realized that summer that we did not want to live in New York anymore. So we went back to New York, but came back West very quickly. And so for years we would come and spend every Thanksgiving um, with Buster in, in Buster was living on First Street before it was what it is now. In Belltown? In Belltown. And um, his, his oven, I mean, if you don't know Buster Simpson's work, go look it up. It's amazing. I mean, he's one of the early people who was really thinking about recycling and sustainability. And he is a national treasure, I think. But his 
everything that he had in his place was recycled. And so the oven was, he had found an old washing machine, a broken down old washing machine. And we would go out and get pallets. And so again, we'd build, we'd build a fire. Were you dumpster diving? Dumpster diving. We were dumpster diving. And so I have deep affection for Seattle. And, and I think the first year of Bumbershoot, my husband, Doug, did a, a rain piano um, for Bumbershoot. So, you know, it was, it was just a place that we went back and forth between Berkeley and Seattle a lot. And, and Doug, more famously... Um, oh, yes, he did. I, I should say that, yes. Uh, he did Soundgarden. Oh, <laughs> Soundgarden at the Noah uh, sculpture. That the, that the band Soundgarden took its name from. Yes. Yeah. Oh. So talking, you know, you go from dumpster diving to gourmet. As a restaurant critic, I say As a restaurant critic, you had a famously private, high-profile job, anonymous, private. Yes. At gourmet, you had an incredibly public one. The glamorization of Ruth came with the gourmet job. The clothes, the hair, the makeup, TV, TV appearances, big events. You became the very public face of the magazine, and they were, in fact, advertising you. So how did you navigate those changes? It was really strange to me, actually. And I resisted it, and I resisted. I was supposed to have a driver, and I wasn't comfortable with the idea of having a driver. I mean, I'm a subway person. I I didn't have a driver for the longest time, and then... There was an event, which you will read about in the book, where my secretary said, you will humiliate me if you, do, if you go to this event without a driver. I mean, every other editor there will have a driver. And, you know, as a personal favor to me, <laughs> please take a car. And so I say, okay, you know, I'll take a car. And I, I go down, and she says, you know, the guy's name is Mustafa, go down there. Mustafa turns around to me and he says, you never take cars. I say, well, you know, I like the subway. And he said, but there's a line on your budget for cars. And, you know, you're taking money. You know, all of us, when we heard there was a new editor at Condé Nast, we were really excited because everybody wanted to be your driver. And, you know, why why don't you give us the work? And I thought, oh, (laughs) this is something I hadn't thought. And I kind of fell in love with him. And then my husband gets in the car and they have this big political, I mean, Mustafa's from um, Alexandria, Egypt, and they have this big discussion about the Middle East. And Mustafa became my driver. (laughs) You know, it's funny, I remember, um, so just so you'll know this, I um, met Ruth for the first time in 2001. And it was actually weeks after 9-11. We were both on the James Beard Restaurant Awards Committee at the time. And for me to come here from Seattle and walk into a room that had, I think there were 16 people in it, people whose work I had been reading since I was a waitress. And I'm gonna be part of them. I'm not gonna like there to wah at them. I was there to, to be part of this team. And this team were Johnny Apple from the New York Times and Ruth, who was a gourmet at the time, and Corby Kummer, and, and uh, just there was, there was an enormous number of people. And I was really nervous for me. I don't get nervous, but I was nervous for me. And I just remember seeing her and thinking she, she was more 
I felt comfortable about you. But the one thing that I totally remember about your driver and her budget was she took us all out to lunch at this place called Fulin. And Fulin, is that in Chinatown? We went to this joint. We all went. She didn't, she didn't take us. But there were 16 of us. They brought this giant table, and they set it in the middle, and we all were eating like duck lips since it was fabulous. And um, then Ruth signed for the bill, paid for us all, and got into her town car and drove off. <laughs> and we got in subway. <laughs> so how much do you think ambition played out in the success of your very successful career? I'm ambitious. It's a word I hate, and I don't like to think of myself as being ambitious, but... I mean, it would be ridiculous to say that I wasn't. You do it in a kind of low-key way, though, or so it comes off. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, I never went after a job. I mean, I literally every job I ever had, you know, starting from being the restaurant critic of New West Magazine, you know, it literally came from I was part of a collective restaurant, and I was writing little tiny articles for the magazine, and one day an editor came in and said, he was eating at the restaurant, and he just looked at me and he said, you know, you're a better writer than our restaurant critic, and have you ever thought of writing restaurant reviews? I, I didn't, you know, I, I didn't go after that job. I just got it. And I didn't go after the job at the LA Times, but I got it. And, you know, I, I, when the New York Times said, you want to come be a restaurant critic in, in New York, I was, why would I want to do that? I love my job in LA. And I didn't want the job at Gourmet either. I mean, I didn't go after them, but although I had liked every job I had, so just saying yes to them was pretty ambitious. Hmm. So, you know, in, in chapter 17 of, of your book, this chapter is called Food People, and it speaks to the generosity of people in the food world, and chefs in particular, and it involves two very different, very gut-wrenching, Moments in time, nearly two decades apart. Uh, the first is 9-11. You want to talk to us a little bit about what it was like for you as a native New Yorker? It's almost unimaginable for anybody who wasn't there and who have had the kind of privilege that Americans have had of never being under attack. For me, the, the real moment was when, you know, I'd finally seen everybody in the office made sure everybody had a place to go and I finally walked home and I was going to go up to the country because my son was in school in the Bronx and Michael had gone to pick him up and you couldn't get back into the city and so I went home and got the cats and at the last moment I went and got our passports because I thought maybe we're never coming back. I mean it was terrifying. It, it was terrifying. And when we finally realized the next day that it was over, and my only thought was then to go back and feed the firefighters and the, the people, the first responders, it was kind of amazing because I put out, I just sent out this email to everybody on the staff and said, you know, this isn't a command performance, but I'm going to go into the office and cook for firefighters. And, you know, if you feel like joining me, buy some food and come come to the kitchens. And I got in there thinking nobody would be there. 
And the word had gone out, and it wasn't just it wasn't just gourmet people. It was you know people were desperately looking for something to do to help, and you know it was. Um, PR people had heard about it. People came with their kids, and you know everybody just showed up with bags of groceries, and we started cooking. I, I was really proud of what happened in New York over that time. I mean, we, as a city, really pulled together to try and help each other. And you know, chefs, Daniel Ballou and a whole group of chefs got a boat and anchored it down there and just started cooking feeding people, and the food community especially just showed up to do what we could do. I mean, I think it's very much, it's the same feeling I got from that as the feeling I get from Jose Andres. You know, I mean, the idea that he sees what's going on in Puerto Rico, and he goes down there with his credit card, right? And he just says, I'm going to fix this. And that's what food people do in a crisis, and I was really proud. You talk about uh, the Chef's Night Out parties that you've had and your, new, and your new publisher, and how he sees how chefs actually hang out together and talk, yeah. which is something that I always love saying about our chefs here in Seattle. They're, they actually do stuff together. They're, they're friends. At the tail end of that chapter, you touch on the Me Too movement. And it was interesting to me to read what you said about it. You touched on it briefly in a couple of paragraphs. I, I was remembering what it was like when I was a young woman. And I, like the first time I ate an oyster, my boss, who was married, stood behind me and made me tilt my head back and lean up against him and he put it in my mouth. And, you know, in, in retrospect, like at the time I wasn't thinking anything of that, but in light of this, these all those things that just seem so normal could be construed another way in today's light. I want you to talk about how that is for you given your stature and your, um, your, your knowledge of the community. Well, you know, I, I worked in restaurants like all through college and after college. You know, the, the restaurant model is a sexist European model. And it has always been unabashedly that. And I mean, I remember that in the summer, the thing I hated most was it was, it was worth your life to go into a kitchen and order anything with cherries on it. I mean, suddenly there would be all kinds of jokes about cherries and it was just, and kitchens in those days were really hot and chefs would start drinking. I mean, one of the things that you as a waitress were do, was doing was like you were bringing drinks to the guy. And it was like, it would be like 120, 125 degrees behind the stove. And by 10 o'clock at night, they were all roaring drunk and very handsy. And half naked with ice cold towels wrapped around their necks. Yes. Uh, but I don't think it was any different when I started as a freelance writer in magazines. And all the big editors were guys. And you were fair game, you know, and more vulnerable. I mean, there was a lot of, there was a lot of verbiage in restaurants. In the media world, it was more than that. It was like, 
You want to get your story in the magazine? Really? There was a lot of that. And we all accepted it. And it was transactional. You know, it was like, how do you manage to make this guy feel okay? You refuse him, but feel like you really wish you weren't. And I was married, so it was much easier for me to say, you know. But, I mean, there was, there was a lot of that. I want to say that I think it should be noted that the Me Too thing is certainly not relegated to restaurants. It is across Hollywood. It is across corporate America. It is across the media. It is something that has been accepted in business throughout the history of our country and most other countries. And in this Me Too mo moment, the only industry I see really making a change, trying to make a change, is the restaurant industry. Right on. I, I mean, they are policing themselves, they are thinking about it, and they are trying to change. And, you know, that food and wine article about 19 really good restaurants to work in made me really proud. I mean, here are people. I mean, you've you got a good example here in, in Seattle with Tom Douglas, who for years has, like, cared about giving health benefits and, to his employees. But most restaurants haven't thought about those things until now. And suddenly it's like restaurateurs across the country are starting to think, how do, how do I make this good for the workers as well as for me? In the book, you mention, uh, in passing, the sweet, younger, not yet famous Tony Bourdain. And you talk at length in the book about your dear friends, Laurie Ochoa and Jonathan Gold. Uh, Bourdain died last June. Jonathan died six weeks later. And the deaths were so sad and shocking for so many of us but the effect on you must have been inconceivable. Are you comfortable talking to us a little bit about that? Yeah, I am. I mean, I, I think my own reaction to his death was just like everybody else's in that. I mean, he was just I, an inconceivable loss. And he changed the way all of, uh, all of America thinks about food. And it was wonderful to watch him come into himself. I mean, when I first knew him, I. His mother was my copy editor at the New York Times, so um, I, I knew him before. I mean, I knew him for a long time, and so, I mean, we had a lot of places that we overlapped, and he wrote for us, I mean, from the very beginning. He was one of the first people I went after to write for us, and I, I don't understand, will never understand why he killed himself, um, but... Jonathan's law, I mean, Jonathan and Lori are my family. And um, I've been working with both of them since the early 80s. And actually, when I went to, when I was offered the job at Gourmet, I said, I will take it if I can bring Lori and Jonathan with me. I don't want to do this without them. Um, and you did. And I did. And um, I will never get over Jonathan's death or you know, how, how much it has affected that family. I mean, I mean, I love their kids. And I have to say that one of the things that's happened is the entire food community in Los Angeles has closed around Lori in the most wonderful way. It has been enormously supportive. Lori is, you know, she's the nicest person on earth, but she's also incredibly strong. Also, the thing that was remarkable was when Jonathan died, the entire city of Los Angeles, I mean, his birthday was a few days later, 
it became a city of gold. All the buildings were bathed in gold. And, um, and to think that people would feel that way about a restaurant critic. Yes, exactly. But people felt that Jonathan explained their city to, to them. You know, it's a real testimonial to the power of food. I mean, in, in the same way with Tony. I mean, he, both of them opened, used food to do something much bigger. You know, speaking of it, your father introduced you as a child to the joys of traveling without a passport. Uh, in many ways, this is what Gourmet did for American cooks. And as a world traveler, something you did on the cheap in your youth and on a big fat expense account um, during your tenure with uh, Condé Nast. Professionally, I'd like to hear your take on the importance for all of us of traveling without a passport. I mean, I, I think travel in itself is enormously important. And, you know, one of the things that I don't think we have really absorbed enough is um, how much changed when air travel became cheap. When Gourmet started in 1941, only the wealthy traveled. When immigrants came to this country, they thought they were coming for good because there was no way for them to afford to go home. In the 60s, air travel became available to middle-class people. It changed all of us. How'd you get to Morocco as a young woman? I got to Morocco because when I was in college, my first day at the University of Michigan, I met a man named Mohamed Ramouche, who did not speak English, and I spoke fluent French, and we became friends. And Mohammed was from Rabat, and um, my roommate Lolita and I went to visit his family. And we went on nothing. We went on nothing. We took the ferry from Brindisi to Tunis for, I think, $6, and then made our way across North Africa. You know, in those days, you could travel on $2 a day. It, it was eye-opening, you know, to understand how other people live. And, you know, the, and the other side of it also works, which is that when immigrants to this country thought that they were going home again, the food changed. In the old days, when people came, they wanted to assimilate and be Americans, and their food became American. Instead of treasuring their food ways and, you know, continuing to make tacos and beans and rice or whatever, they made tuna noodle casseroles because that meant that they were American. When they were, knew they were going home again and maybe someday going home for good, they started treasuring their food ways. And that's when food in America really changed, when we were suddenly able to taste what real Italian food, what real Mexican food tasted like, not Mexican food that was made for an American palate. And your father took you as a child into the neighborhoods uh, to, for the taste of his home. Well, af after I discovered gourmet through my father, my father came to America in 1926. He was 26 at the time. And like every German, he first went to Yorkville. And it, it's pretty much gone now. But it was one of those neighborhoods that was just, you know, Dad said it, it was just like he had never left Berlin. People 
Everybody spoke German, and all the shops were German. And he took me back there. By then, by the time I was eight, it was there wasn't much left, but there were a few places. And he took me to the German butcher, and then he realized that maybe we should look at other neighborhoods. So we started going to Little Italy. We went to the Lower East Side. We went up to La Marqueta, to Spanish Harlem. And we started exploring the city. I mean, this is traveling without a passport and learning the food ways of other people. And um, I always feel like you can't really hate people if you like their food. years ago in the New York Times Sunday Magazine live, live section, which I love, you wrote an essay, Why I Disapprove of What I Do, subhead was, it's indecent, to glamor- it's indecent to glamorize a $100 meal, or is it? In it, you wrote, as American food has come of age, American restaurants have changed. Going out to eat used to be like going to the opera. Today, it's more like going to the movies. So nearly 20 years later, how would you describe American restaurants today? They're like watching television. (laughs) I mean, the the most profound change in American restaurants has come from the audience. Um, When I was growing up, the people who counted, the people who went to restaurants were rich white people. Today, the people who count are mostly, I mean, the people who are driving restaurant trends are people between 25 and 35 who don't have kids yet. and have a certain amount of disposable income, have traveled everywhere, have grown up on food TV, are passionate about food, will eat anything, and couldn't care less about what the plates look like, don't want the waiters to look down their noses at them, want to be able to not dress up to go to restaurants. And I mean, I, I always think of it like, When I first went to college, my roommate was someone who was there on a scholarship. In our first week or something, she said to me, I knew right away that you were a rich kid. And I said, what are you talking about? I'm not a rich kid. And she said, well, you know, when we went to a restaurant, she said, I've been to like maybe five restaurants in my whole life. And when I go to the restaurant, I'm very careful to keep one hand in my lap. I would never put my elbows on the table. And she said, and you walk in and you're so comfortable. You're putting your elbows on the table. And, you know, I figure, you know, you've grown up in restaurants and you're a rich kid. And today we're all rich kids. I mean, everybody who goes to restaurants is putting their elbows on the table. They're really comfortable. Restaurants are part of popular culture. And they just weren't until fairly recently. So much of what you write is haunted by your mother. And I was interested to read in this book, You said, what I dream of, my mother writes in her teenage diary, is a life filled with culture and interesting people. That's the life you've had. How much of what you're doing did she get to see? Very little. Very little? Yeah. And have you made some peace with this? I don't think I will ever make peace with how sad my mother's life was. You know, my mother was bipolar, and um, I, I think it's excruciatingly hard to be a person who wakes up every morning not knowing who you are. And she was also of that generation of women who were bright and educated and not really allowed to work. And I feel like 
much of my life has been lived, lived for her in some way. I mean, I feel like I got to live the life my mother would have liked to live. And I thank her for making me want that life. I don't think I'll ever stop being sad that she didn't have it. You said uh, your father saw your mother as, I'm quoting you here, a smart woman born at the wrong time. So how much did this cement in you the need to be a torch-toting feminist? I think a lot. Um, <laughs> I also think, you know, it, it, I think I was enormously lucky in that I was the only child of older parents who did not have a son, and I think I was in many ways raised like a boy. I never, ever thought that some guy was going to support me. It just never crossed my mind. And many women of my generation sort of never took themselves seriously. They were educated, but they thought they were going to get married and, and support their husband's ambitions, but not their own. That just was not part of the DNA of my upbringing. I think I was sort of an inadvertent feminist. It was just, it was how I was. I, it was not ever anything I thought of. And I have to tell you that to this day, it drives me crazy that when you fill out your IRS forms, you know, it well, says, it says, it says, yes, you, it, your husband's, and then it says spouse. And I fill it out the other way, and then um, the government changes it for me. And it, drives me crazy. Yeah, you know, that's funny, I never thought about that, but you're absolutely right. So early in your writing career, you became friends with the grand dames of the culinary world, MFK Fisher, Baron Cunningham, Cecilia Chang, and with those of the next generation, your own generation, Alice Waters. Talk to us about the importance of those mentorships and how, or if you see yourself in that role now. Um, you know, the food world was very small when I was coming up, which was very fortunate for me. I don't think I could be me today. And, you know, so I start writing about food and I instantly meet Marion Cunningham, who takes me under her wing. You want to tell everyone who she is? Marion Cunningham was the woman who um, rewrote the Fanny Farmer cookbook and wrote one of the great cookbooks ever published in America called The Breakfast Book, and probably the best book for novice cooks called Learning to Cook with Marion Cunningham. But, and she was a fascinating woman. She was incredibly beautiful. She had been deeply agoraphobic for much of her life, had never left the state of California until the age of 45. When her son gave her for her birthday a ticket to a James Beard cooking class in Portland. And she was terrified to get on the plane. And her son said to her, if you don't get on that plane, you'll never do anything or be anyone, go. And she said she cried the entire way. And then meeting James Beard, somehow within the next year, she had become his assistant, was flying around the world with him. <laughs> And when Judith... Moral Jim, of the story, listen to your son. Listen to your son, yes. Um, she was, for those of us in the California food world, she was sort of everybody's mother. Um, she talked to everybody. I mean, I talk, there was a point where I talked to her every day on the phone, and she connected us, and you know, she was the one who got Judy Rogers the job 
at Zuni. Uh, then she took James Beard there and made him write about it, so it became famous. And um, I saw you ate dinner there the other night. Yes, I, yes. Did you have the chicken and the? I did. We were there for lunch, and we didn't have very much time. But I want to tell you, the food was perfect. It was perfect. I mean, you know, forty years old, and there was not one thing that wasn't just spot on. It was so satisfying. And then, you know, Marion introduced me to Cecilia. She did not introduce me to MFK Fisher. Ms. Magazine sent me to interview. Mary Frances Fisher, and when the editor called me and said, you know, we want you to go, and she said, do you know who MFK Fisher is? And I gasped that anyone could even ask that question. <laughs> I had literally read every word she had ever written. I went and did this article about her, and we bonded. Um, she was a fascinating woman, an irritating and fascinating woman. <laughs> but all of them were very interested. I mean, there weren't a lot of young people who wanted to write about food in those days. So now there aren't anybody who doesn't. Who doesn't, it's true. <laughs> but yes, I mean, I do think because all of these people took me under their wings. And even um, Judith Jones, who was the most famous cookbook editor ever. Um, I mean, among other things, she did The Diary of Anne Frank. And Mastering the Art of French Cooking was hers, and she did the Edna Lewis cookbook and Marcella Hazan, and on and on and on. Uh, James Beard was hers. When I wrote Tender at the Bone, and my agent had an auction for the book, and Judith called me and she said, I really love your book, and I would love to edit it because it, it would kind of be a perfect coda I mean, I started, she was MFK Fisher's editor as well. She said, you know, it's like, you're the next generation MFK Fisher, and I would love to have this as a bookend. But I, I'm not very powerful right now at Knopf. Um, there's not a lot of appetite for your book, and I can buy it, but they won't do well by you. So I'm not going to bid on it. And it was an act of enormous generosity for her to do that. So, I mean, I feel like there were, there were many women who helped me, including my first editor at New West, Rosalie Wright, who was an extraordinary, powerful newspaper person. I mean, who she was at New West and then she went on to newspapers and was a real beacon for me of what a woman boss could be. Straightforward. You know, she was the kind of person who if she got to the office and there was no one there, she would answer the phone and leave you a message. And so, yes, I do feel a certain obligation to pay it forward. In 2019, in the media world that's increasingly dominated by Google and Facebook and Amazon and podcasts and video, what do you think the future holds for print magazines? <laughs> I am optimistic that, um, you know, it's like the demise of the book has, uh, has not occurred. Um, in fact, you know, bookstores, independent bookstores, you know, more opened last year. Cookbooks sell very well. I think that print does something that digital can't. I am very much hoping that someone will figure out a formula where you can do what you do digitally and marry it with what you can do in print. I mean, I think the thing that print does 
is feed the imagination in a way that can't happen online, that we all hunger for that. And I think someone will marry the two and figure out how to monetize it. So I'm waiting for that. You know, Ruth, I wanted to ask you one more thing. I think when I ran into you last about, I don't know, six, seven years ago, I told you that I had gotten this book. When, when did you open? 2011. Okay, so something yeah. like that. And <laughs> you told me a funny story. I told you how much I paid for it. $100. That about your, a box of books. Do you remember what you said? Something like your mother had a Oh, no. What I said was when they remaindered the book, which they do, and, and publishers, you know, call you and say, okay, the book is done. Um, nobody's going to buy it anymore. And you can have them at, I don't know, a quarter of their cost or something, very cheaply. And I had no money and said, I don't want them. And my parents said, we'll buy them. You should have them. Someday you're going to want them. And boy, were they right. I brought this prop. This is, this is how important Gourmet Magazine was to people. This book, which is the, the, the forerunner, the one you edited, has my mother-in-law's name engraved on the front of it. She got it at a Christ, as a Christmas gift in 1952, and I actually have the photograph of it sitting under the Christmas tree here. And like so many other great, my mother-in-law was 99 when she died five years ago, and like every great cookbook, it has all kinds of wonderful little things in here, so this is the real reason why we keep cookbooks, so that we can pass them down to the next generation. Perfect ending. Many thanks to Nancy Leeson for leading that fantastic discussion, to Ruth Reichel for taking the time to visit us in Seattle, and to Penguin Random House for sending her to us. If you'd like to get a copy of Save Me the Plums, you can get 10% off this and any other books that you hear featured on the Booklarder podcast by visiting booklarder.com and entering the code podcast at checkout. This episode was produced and edited by Abby Circatella. Our theme music was composed by James Coley. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, where our handle is at BookLarder. To subscribe to our monthly newsletter and get more information about our author talks and cooking classes, visit BookLarder.com. And if you find yourself in Seattle, please visit us at 4252 Fremont Avenue North. I'm Laura Hamilton. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll see you next time.